0: this week on Forward. Here we are, we, we have a new virus. We don't know what causes it. We don't know much about it. We don't know how to treat it. We don't even really know how to diagnose it. We don't have any of those problems. When we talk about schizophrenia, depression, bipolar illness, how we know how to, we know how to diagnose these illnesses and we know how to treat them. It's the execution. How do you get the things that people need to them when they need it in the right way? I think the reason we do is we confuse illness and identity. And it's an easy mistake to make, as I write about in the book. You know, these are people who have made that mistake for themselves. They may think that schizophrenia is who they are. And what we're doing here when we allow someone to stay under the bridge is we're listening to their illness and not paying attention to their identity.
1: I am thrilled to have joining me on the podcast today, the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, the former mental health czar for the state of California, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and author of the book, Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health, Tom Insel, MD. Tom, Welcome.
0: Thank you, Andrew. What a pleasure to be here. I was going to wear my math hat this morning, decided I'd leave it off just because it's kind of dated, but um, delighted to be sitting down with you and having this conversation.
1: Well, delighted as well. Uh, And so you know, you met my brother at a particular point because he's a psychologist. Um, you were the director of the NIMH, and he was just an assistant professor who was writing grants in your direction. He actually <laughs> got got some grants, which, great. Um, which excited our parents a great deal. But uh, tell people a little bit. I think people mostly vaguely know what the National Institute of Mental Health is. Um, you were essentially the Surgeon General for the Mental Health of the country for, gosh, over a decade.
0: Uh, Yeah, usually people would say the Tony Fauci of mental health because it's the parallel position. So the uh, Tony and 26 others of us uh, are institute directors within the vast thing called the National Institutes of Health. And that's part of the Department of Health and Human Services and the federal government. And it's... It's, it's really an interesting uh, agency in, w- in which the government essentially has put uh, several billion dollars into research on um, biomedical and public health issues so the Institute of uh, National Institute of Mental Health was the government's investment in in science to understand more about everything from the most basic aspects of mental illness, like how does the brain work and what are the genetics of these disorders and where in the brain can you see the impact to um, how do you develop diagnostics and therapeutics and even tracking um, the epidemiology and you know how common are these and where do they occur and all of that stuff. So it's um, for now, what, 75 years, um, it's been the uh, really the flagship in the United States for understanding mental illness. What it doesn't do, it used to do until 1991, I guess, is it was also involved with the service delivery system. Uh, So it it was the National Institute of Mental Health that led the community mental health movement of the 1960s and 70s under President Kennedy and then Johnson and and thereafter. But uh, that was split off. There's another agency in the federal government called SAMHSA, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Agency that's responsible for the services side. Of delivering care um, and provides money to all the states to do much of that.
1: So, this book is a passion project of yours, and I love it so much because uh, imagine the guy who is running uh, Point for Science on Mental Health, and you tell this very jarring story, but it's very personal, where you're uh, doing a talk and you're talking about the science of mental health, and then a dad stands up and is like, Hey, um, the house is on fire because he has a child who's suffering from schizophrenia or an acute mental illness. And you're here talking about the chemistry of the paint. And I, I thought that that was such uh, like, uh, an honest uh, depiction of... And then you know you, you um, like are, are um, now uh, very open about the fact that what's motivating you is, look, we know some of the things that are working and not working in mental health, uh, and and yet we're suffering at an epic level that parent um, your book is filled with very personal stories about people who are suffering from mental health issues. And a lot of them don't have happy endings, too. That's, that's another thing that, um, you know, I, I, I thought was very, very honest. Um, so what drove you to write this book?
0: Yeah, you know, Andrew was really just that disconnect for me. I, I had been. Um, kind of on the bridge, you know, driving this ship on research, and it was phenomenal. I mean, I really feel privileged to have been from 2002 to 2015 helping hundreds, including your brother, uh, thousands of, of scientists make phenomenal advances. It really was this kind of golden era for neuroscience, for genomics, for many areas of basic science, especially actually cognitive science and behavioral science, where we really went from, um, I would say, kind of a plateau for many, many years to um, a completely different space within those 13 years. It was, it was spectacular. So on the one hand, um, I saw all this progress. And I know from that experience that uh, you know we knew more, we had more to offer, we had more people getting into treatment. And yet, when you look at the population statistics, you look at population health, all the numbers were going south. Yep. you you know you could see the suicide rate increase thirty percent in those years suicide death rate in the United states uh the number of people with serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar illness and severe depression who were becoming homeless, becoming unemployed um, becoming incarcerated, which is kind of so hard for us to understand in this country and yet it's what we do all that was getting so much worse so I couldn't really, I, 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 it was like a tale of two cities. I couldn't put them together. I couldn't figure out, like, how, how is it that so much of our progress in science has failed to move the needle in public health? What are we doing wrong here? Oh, how, I mean, literally, how have we failed? Because it was failure, and it was our inability to deliver on what we know which is very different than the problem in much of medicine, where we don't know what we need to do. Here, we actually had good things to offer. People don't often understand that, but for virtually every mental disorder, we have treatments that work. If you get them in the right way at the right time, and it's the right treatment for you, you'll do really well. People do recover. Um, And yet, with all of that, um, the statistics and they don 't lie in this case, because you see this with your own eyes in every city and even in rural areas of America today, people are suffering far more than they had been before
1: yeah the the data is not good, uh, and you reference suicides, which I think most people are familiar with anxiety depression um all going up. Uh, it sounds like you 're looking at a time period that 's beyond the kind of recent what they call like the young person epidemic though that there are a lot of folks who think that uh, it's more pronounced among uh, the younger generation, perhaps because of social media and uh, and, and other forces. Um, so there, there's a press conference you relate early in the book, and you talk about, uh, so someone says, hey, uh, the mental health system in America is broken. And there are a lot of people that say that uh, in different contexts in the book. It's like, oh, the, the mental health system in America is broken. And then someone, uh, I believe it was the then Surgeon General, corrects and says, Um, you're wrong because America doesn't actually have a national mental health system. Um, And and I thought that that was a a very important observation or characterization. So for the average American listening to this, uh, they think, hey, it seems like our mental health is getting worse. And then they also think uh, that there are a bunch of structural reasons why it might be very hard to, to get treatment, which we'll go into in your book, Happily documents them. Um, But first, is there actually a national mental health system?
0: No. You know, I think there was when I was, I'm an old guy, so I started training uh, in the 70s when we had a community mental health system. And there really was a national system funded by the federal government set up through the Kennedy administration. It was actually the last bill that he signed before he was assassinated, almost precisely to the day 30 years ago, I'm sorry, 60 years ago, um, end of October. Uh, And when he signed the bill, uh, he made this famous statement uh, just outside the Oval Office where he was doing his uh, signing ceremony. He said, you know, um, we're in a new era. And with what we know today, uh, we can do so much better. He said that people with mental illness must no longer be alien to our affections or apart from our communities. And he laid out this beautiful vision uh, that we would build a national mental health care system um, funded by the federal government, that every community would have a clinic um, where people would be able to get the new medications because we just had the first antipsychotics. Um, They would be able to leave the state hospitals where many, on average, people would stay for a decade so it was a really long length of stay. It's hard to believe. Uh, there were 600,000 people like that in the United States at that time. And his vision was that they would be in uh, these community clinics where there would be wraparound services and they would be able to thrive and recover. Um, that So we did have a national mental health system when I started my career. And I do think we actually did better for people at that point. Uh, but that ended in 1980. Well, actually, to be fair, it never really got built out fully. Uh, the vision was there. I don't think the implementation was. We screwed up, as we often do in America. We screwed up on the execution. So what, what ended up happening was that uh, people left the state hospitals. State hospitals closed. We have 95% fewer beds in state hospitals today than we did when I started my career 50 years ago. But um, we didn't really provide the community supports, so and we didn't have um, all of the services that people needed uh, to be able to thrive outside of an institution. Hence, homelessness, incarceration. We sort of, what I call in the book, we, we went into not just deinstitutionalization, but trans-institutionalization. We moved people from a state hospital system to jails and prisons. And, and, and the criminal justice system is is. To the extent that there is a national mental health system today, it's it's a state-run and locally-run jail and prison system, and I, you know, obviously we don't do that for diabetes, we don't do it for hypertension, we don't do it for asthma, but in the case of mental illness, um, it's become a criminal criminal justice issue, not a. It's no longer so much a healthcare issue.
1: Yeah, there, there's a graph in the book that uh, very vividly shows uh, the decline of state mental hospitals, and then the massive construction of prisons and jails, Uh, and it's almost uh, Um, one-to-one. It's wild. Um, So how many mentally ill people do you think are behind bars as we're having this conversation, roughly?
0: Yeah, the number that we usually look at, according to the Treatment Advocacy Center, who looked at this, is about 345,000 people every night or in a jail or a prison, uh, because they have a serious mental illness and they've done something which is part of their illness. Um, so these aren't essentially, I mean, they, they may have done criminal activity, but they're the kind of people who in the early part of my career would have ended up in a hospital um, sure. and where they'd be treated, not behind bars where um, they would really often just languish. I mean, to be fair, I, you know, this isn't, it's not like, sheriffs and and prison wardens are looking to do this. This isn't what they want to be doing either.
1: No, no, it's just, it's fallen to them. Uh, I
0: talk about this in the book. You know, I walked around uh, the San Francisco jail. I live in the Bay Area and uh, I took a day when I was working on the book uh, to spend in that jail. And and it it was just, it just blew my mind that there was, I think I tell the story. I walked around with a nurse who was handing out medication at every cell. And she had a medication cart exactly like what we used to use in the hospital going from you know room to room and handing out whatever medication was on the chart that's what they do in jails today um, and um, and the numbers are really are really disturbing when you look at uh, how long people stay in jails because and by the way often these are not people who have necessarily committed a crime. You know they're waiting to be adjudicated often, so they could be there for months. Because if you're a person with a psychotic illness, um, you're probably not going to be the first one to be processed. And and the numbers are really stunning. It's not only that they stay longer, but they stay. They come more often. They have a much more frequent rate of being processed through the the jail system. So it literally has become the default mental health care system for this. 14 million people who have serious mental illness. Uh, it's an exceptional thing. There's, I don't know of any other country that does that. Um, it's incredibly expensive. It's not what anybody wants, and yet it's where we've ended up because we don't have the capacity to do this in a way that where they're no longer alien to our affections. They're no longer part of our communities.
1: that's EXPRESSVPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So we closed all the state hospitals. And then if I have uh, a friend or relative or child uh, who is experiencing mental health issues, uh, then it's very, very hard to get them into treatment. Um, Oftentimes they don't want treatment. You can't commit someone else to treatment. If you do try and bring them to treatment, there might not be a bed available for them because uh, certainly the state hospitals don't have beds. You do describe in the book where there are beds available um, in private facilities, but often they're uncovered uh, because if someone doesn't have health insurance, then they don't get that. Uh, Even if you do have health insurance, they cover you a finite number of days and then they uh, they're like, and you're out of here. And they be like, out to where? And then uh, people are like, don't know. And, and then in some cases, if you have money, maybe they bring you to some uh, other facility uh, that's uh, paid for out, out of pocket. There are heartbreaking stories of families going broke, trying to fund their child's treatment um, and whatnot. Sometimes that treatment's not effective. So, like, if you go into the, the system... It ends up being this uh, broken, uncovered, ho- under-resourced hodgepodge, um, and you're you're not sure, uh, and uh, and so a lot of people slip through the cracks, and then they wind up um, in our criminal justice system, or in some cases homeless. So uh, so that's the the thing that I think most Americans believe uh, to be true. Like how much of, of that description, some of that description is drawn from your book, <laughs> but how, how much of that description is um, is the, the reality?
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty close. And and of course it depends uh where you come in to the system and what resources you have. There are people who can pay for private care in a very nice facility and get reasonably good care. But that's the 1%. Uh, most of us aren't going to be in that situation. And even those places there could be a long waiting list to get in. I mean we just don't have the capacity. We have to rebuild that and I wouldn't want anybody listening to think that the book is only about how crappy the situation is, because it is pretty you know, it's pretty dire. But actually most of the book's about solutions, because I'm, you know, I actually am really optimistic that these are all problems. Everything you just mentioned, Andrew, we can actually we can fix that. These are not insolvable or even that difficult of problems to fix. And kind of what, one of the things that drew me to, to write the book was to realize, wait a second, like, this is, I was working on this at the uh, very beginning of COVID, and I thought, wait, I mean, like, it, here we are, we, we have a new virus, we don't know what causes it, we don't know much about it, we don't know how to treat it, we don't even really know how to diagnose it. Uh, we don't have any of those problems. When we talk about schizophrenia, depression, bipolar illness, We know how to we know how to diagnose these illnesses, and we know how to treat them. And, and the real issue is uh, kind of, again, like I said before, it's the execution. How do you get the things that people need to them when they need it in the right way? Um, it's not easy always, but uh, it's not an impossible problem to solve. And so, but I'm, I, I'm actually pretty optimistic that uh, we're, we're turning the corner on a lot of those issues that you just described. Uh, and some of them are going to be hard, but technology helps us a ton. Um, it democratizes care, it allows us to do things much more efficiently, It's all kinds of ways in which it improves access. It also allows us to measure objectively. AI is going to be transformative for this field, and it's going to allow us to improve quality of care by getting better measurement, which has been a huge, huge problem. Um, medications, you know, are important, and they're a big part of this, but what I talk a lot about in the book is that it's not enough. Uh, medications may be necessary but not sufficient for what we really need, which isn't just reducing symptoms, but helping people recover, helping them to get the housing, the work support, the family support, all the things that they're going to need if they're going to thrive. And they do. You know, you give them those things, they do thrive. And and we have to We really have to remember that, that um, the goal here is recovery and people do recover. And we know how to help them. But what we don't know is um, how to get that at scale.
1: Well, I agree. Your book is very, very solutions-oriented, solutions-packed, and uh, I I learned a lot. Um, So uh, let's talk about what works. And here's some of the heartening things where you dig and say, let's say someone's suffering from depression, which I I think is the most widespread. Um, There are things that work. Uh, You talked about medications, uh, some of them. Uh, work uh, on a lot of people Uh, maybe they have to try different things Um, you uh, make a case for cognitive behavioral therapy which is something that uh, I'm a huge fan of um, and it works Uh, now uh, now it it turns out that um, a relatively low proportion of the people that would benefit from getting cognitive behavioral therapy actually receive it um, which is uh, unfortunate um, but we know that it 's effective in a very significant uh, number of cases one thing that 's where uh,
0: technology sorry but that's that 's a place where technology can help the fact that um, you can make this available to far more people online than we can brick and mortar
1: yeah so that 's super exciting. There was one thing that blew my mind, which was fun, um, which was that uh, that there is uh, magnetic stimulation um, that actually has been proven to help ease depression in a number of people and um, you to have a case study where a woman's like what, and then does some <laughs> does some yeah, transcranial yeah. magnetic stimulation. It's like oh my gosh, that actually does make me feel something, uh, you know, uh, a little bit better. So there's there are things that work. Um, un- unfortunately, not enough people are getting them for a variety of reasons.
0: Yeah. So what I I talk a lot in the book about. This idea that we have to shift from a kind of strictly medical model—the pill or the magnetic stimulation, or whatever it is—to uh, a broader model that looks at at supporting recovery—and I and I talk a lot about that as the three P's: people, place, and purpose. That, um, unlike the treatment of cancer, where we are an infectious disease, where we're you know you got a simple bug out there and you want to kill it with a simple drug, you do that and you're done. It, it's just not like that here for most people, particularly those with a serious mental illness like schizophrenia, it's going to require a lot more. And would, to give, giving people the three Ps, people, place, and purpose, the social support, the, the environment in which they can recover, and then a, and a purpose, a reason, something to, something to recover for, something to strive for, a mission. Um, we don't have to do that in most of medicine but we do have to do that here. And and I think when I wrote the book and I was so focused on this, um, I left out a P I, I didn't really understand it until later. And that was payment. We don't pay for much of what really matters and what really is important for people to recover. And without the payment, it doesn't get done at least not in the healthcare system. So as you were saying, you know, what, why is it that people don't get the care, don't get the things that work? It's because we don't really incentivize that. And So we have a, we have a set of problems that require this very broad approach, um, and yet we do this within a healthcare context where we take a very narrow kind of infectious disease approach. Um, and even in the world that I come from, which is the world of science and research, so much of our research was in search of that, the next penicillin for schizophrenia, that that magic bullet that was going to make all the difference. I don't know that that's really ever going to happen. But I do know that if we get away from that magic bullet kind of thinking, and say <clears throat> we're going to make sure. That Mr. Jones has a, has the social support he needs, he has the environment he needs, and he has the help with work getting back to work um, that he'll be able to recover. Uh, and he's off, obviously going to need to be on medication most of the time. So all of that is actually possible if we start to pay for it. Um, and you know the the irony of all this <clears throat> is that it's not very expensive. Uh, the things that I write about in the book are like the clubhouse. You know, New York has a wonderful clubhouse called Fountain House.
1: Yeah, it's a great for order.
0: For s- 75 years, people have been uh, helped with su- helping each other. I, to be really clear, it's about people helping each other to recover. And, and it works. It really matters. Um, and th- you can replicate that all across the country. Um, that's not a very expensive operation, um, and yet it does the work that re- greatly reduces rehospitalization, emergency room visits, all that stuff. The other amazing thing that's sort of happened since the book was written, um, and I'd love to think that the book helped in this, um, is that we have, as a nation, decided to recreate a national mental, mental health care system, the first time since 1963. So uh, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act of last year decided that uh, we're in a national crisis in terms of mental health. The White House says that, the Surgeon General says that, we have to do something. And so they took a model called the, oh, it's a terrible name, the Certified Community Behavioral Health Centers, or CCBHCs, uh, which were already going in a few states as a pilot program, and they said this is fantastic. This really works. We have now the initial data. Um, and these are these are centers that provide the three Ps. They, they provide for uh, all the things that we, need, we know people need to recover. Whole person care, irrespective of age, geography, ability to pay or diagnosis. As long as people have either substance use disorder or a serious mental illness, they're in. They get care here and they get care that's completely wraparound. It's all the things that they're going to need. It's not just medication, and we're going to we're going to fund that. We're going to fund that across the country. We're going to put eight and a half billion dollars into that, and we're going to make sure um, that we do this in a way that really begins to bend the curve for um, this population, which has ended up incarcerated instead of in the healthcare system. So once again, these folks are no longer going to be alien to our affections. We'll see. Um, I'm I'm concerned that. We need to make sure we've learned the lessons of the 60s and 70s when we last tried to do this. But how cool is this that just in the last year, year and a half, uh, the country has uh, begun to wake up to really saying, no, we're going to try to do this at scale.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now... Seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, their book is very wise, um, and, and it, it talks about the whole patient approach. Uh, it does have uh, the three P's: people, place, and purpose, and it goes into things that have been constructive. That when and what's good too is you're honest. You're like initially you were like that works, and then you're like yeah, it does work. So it, it's things like um, supportive grandmas, uh, where they're they're yeah. like reaching out. The to friendship folks. bench,
0: oh. yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, the friendship bench. I was like that works. Um, I mean, you know, but then you think, oh yeah, that would work because it's just human, you know. Like you have people reaching out to you, um, you have nurses taking over care in a particular way, and then that that uh, works wonders. And you're like, huh, like that doesn't seem that hard. Um, so you, there, so there are a bunch of things that are kind of obvious and human, uh, you know. And and you talk about how the treatment is a small fraction of uh the the problem, um even though even that's not you know happening all the time, obviously. Uh and that there are all of these things around the patient, the environment, uh like, you know, like the the uh their ability to feel like there's a reason to wake up in the morning, you know, and, and like get out and do things. You know, and, and when you think about it, it's like, oh that seems pretty obvious. But uh but then that's not the way our sick care system approaches things. Like you, you say they go in and be like, Oh, you you got acute symptoms. Let me try and zap those symptoms and then you you like put them back into whatever the heck environment and hope for the best and uh and shockers, it's not very effective.
0: Yeah, I was at a meeting yesterday where somebody said when I said we don't have a mental health care system, he said, Of course we have a system. We have exactly a system and it's not broken. He said it works exactly the way it was set up to work, which is to be totally dysfunctional. It's actually, you know, it's just, it's incentivizing all the wrong things. And, yep. um, and I think that's, that's right. I think we could fix this simply by starting to move the money towards what the things we want. So, um, you mentioned that I served as a mental health czar in California and, um, I didn't get very much done. That was in 2019, but my God, what's happened since then here is just, stunning. And it's a story that I don't think most people would know. Um, we have a governor who uh, cares deeply about these issues. And I'm not, I am not—I don't work for him, so I don't have to say any of this. But he's become pretty unpopular with parts of the advocacy movement because he's um, demanding accountability. And he's demanding that we close that gap that I started with, the gap between what we know and what we do. Because, you know, he's just so fed up with the fact that in spite of spending so much money in California on mental health issues, we have more homeless people, more people with untreated mental illness, more people getting incarcerated. And so he's basically said enough already. And we've done a bunch of things here, which I think are are first in the nation and are pretty extraordinary. So we revamped our Medicaid system. Medicaid is the health insurance, the public health insurance for people, um, who can't afford private insurance, so it's, it's um, the major payer for mental health care in, across the country and, uh, and certainly within California. We, we've gotten a waiver uh, for how we use the Medicaid money, so we have today the ability for a Medicaid provider in our state to, write a, to do all three Ps. Um, if I'm a Medicaid provider, I can write a prescription for food I can write a prescription for um, to you know, help somebody with their loneliness. I can write a prescription for rent. Uh, how amazing is that? So um, the people, place, and purpose idea has now become, not directly, but, but all of those things are really within the purview of what Medicaid can do for the first time. Pretty stunning. The other thing, you mentioned this before, Andrew, and it, it's often not clear to people who aren't directly involved in this field. But if you have a loved one with severe mental illness, they're not looking for care often. Uh, they, don't, may, they may not even think that they're sick. They may deny being ill. And that's such a huge challenge because it throws you into this problem that I write about in the book of involuntary treatment. And, uh, you know, in America, we don't like to talk about this. But uh, for someone who has dementia... Uh, or sometimes for young children who are too young to be able to ch- mm-hmm. choose that they actually need to have blood drawn to get a diagnosis. Or or for someone with psychosis who says, look, um, you know, I'm, I'm telling you there really are aliens who are tracking my brainwaves. And you just can't hear them, but I can. And so I'm right and you're wrong. Um, those are people who may need to be treated um, in spite of their wishes. And we've been very loathe to do that. Um, and it's one of the reasons why in California we have so many people living under bridges and eating out of dumpsters to we don't want to confront them and say, look, you're sick and you need to be, the compassionate thing here is to help you, even though you may not want the help. What we're doing is allowing people to die with their rights on. And the governor has finally said, maybe that's not the most compassionate thing. Maybe we need to actually mandate treatment and we also need to mandate that the counties provide the treatment for people who may not be knocking on their door but who are living under their bridges
1: I, I yeah i i i think it's i don't think it's compassionate just to let someone die under the bridge uh you know i don't think it's compassionate to be uh stepping over people who are clearly in in need of help as is happening in a a lot of places uh i think it's just um i mean you describe as a reluctance to confront um there are various failures, really, uh, institutional failures, uh, and then people suffer as a result, including people who could use um, some help. Uh, and y- your book really makes a very powerful case. Like, look, we don't allow this for diabetes or any other type of illness. Like, what the heck? Are, you know, why are we treating this so differently?
0: Yeah, I think I think the reason we do is we confuse illness and identity. And it's an easy mistake to make, as I write about in the book, you know, these are people who have made that mistake for themselves. They may think that schizophrenia is who they are. And what we're doing here when we allow someone to stay under the bridge is we're listening to their illness and not paying attention to their wow. identity. And yeah. they, you know, it may be only 2% of that person is the part that's going to recover. It's, it, But but it's still that 2% that you've got to focus on, the, the part of that person that is not ill. And it's interesting, I mean, for the people who do this um, and who spend the time um, trying to help those under a bridge someplace. And here, where I live in the Bay Area, we have thousands and thousands of people in this situation. Um, what you learn is they don't really want to be living this way. This isn't a choice. This isn't what they want to do. They're frightened. Um, and they're frightened because of the voices. And and they're frightened to go someplace where they won't. they don't know what's going to happen to them. Uh, and so it's it, it's it's kind of unthinkable that we have allowed their illness to become the part of them that we are listening to instead of wow. understanding that there's a person behind that illness who's ultimately going to triumph if they get the right care, but who um, just doesn't have the strength to do it by themselves. And so it does come down to compassion and thinking about, uh, what is the most compassionate issue? But it, I bring this up, and I think that it's important to talk about it in the book because even though, you know, in this conversation we're focused on mental illness, pretty quickly you realize, wow, this is at the center of so many other things. This is so many. This is at the center of homelessness, of crowding of the jails, of problems in schools, of just a huge number of issues. I was with some folks yesterday from the child welfare system. Just stunning how you know, 35% of the kids in the child welfare system are not going to graduate from high school. Oh, no. Why is that? A lot of them yeah. have untreated mental illness that just don't end up getting the services they need. So it's, it's really, I think, for so many of the issues we care about, um, this has been the piece that we just haven't really addressed and haven't wanted to deal with, but we're going to have to. I call this, in the book, I call it our Jim Crow moment. Because it is, it does. These are are untouchables in a way. They're our lowest caste. They've been neglected entirely, and yet, um, it's it's not who we are, or maybe it is who we are, but it's not who we want to be. And I think it's you know what I'm arguing is that um, we could redefine the nation over how we help those who are suffering the most and who uh, have the greatest needs.
1: So your fourth P of payment, I think, is super profound. Um, uh, And this is my obsession in life now, um, for better or for worse, um, which is that you get what the system incentivizes. uh, You don't get what the system doesn't incentivize. Uh, You talk about Fountain House, um, which is a great org. Um, Fountain House is a nonprofit that uh, raises money in various ways. They might get some public funding, but I think a lot of it's philanthropic, um, which is something that a lot of people understand it's like, oh, you know, like good causes and organizations uh, rise up um, to fill in needs. Uh, I think most of us would uh, agree that they don't, uh, you know, they don't have the resources necessary to fill all the needs and that you'd, you'd hope for in this case, like more functional institutions and that. Um, but in the absence of those institutions, there are various nonprofits doing great work. So how could we incentivize the right things in this system um, you know, it's like, so my, my obsession is, uh, it's like, hey, you incentivize wacky politics, you get wacky politics, uh, you know, you incentivize money flowing to treatment uh, of symptoms, you get some of that, you know, uh, now you talk about prevention in the book, you know, we don't get much of that, because there's no money in that.
0: Imagine a, a system that's built around paying for people who have a diagnosis. So how do you do prevention in that situation? <laughs> it's not going to work. So it's it's um, it's really the question right now that I'm most consumed with. I, After doing the book, I co-founded a startup called Vana Health. And, and Vana basically looks at exactly this issue for the people who are the most expensive, those who are going in and out of prison or jail, those who are uh, in and out of emergency rooms or inpatient facilities. Uh, it's really stunning because even those who may not have... Um, be in the behavioral health system. They may not even, you know, ever go to a mental health clinic. They may have serious mental illness and what's driving them in and out are their pulmonary problems, uh, their cardiac problems. They may have foot ulcers, just a whole bunch of things uh, on the medical side. They're the, among the most expensive medical patients. And that was my aha moment because I thought, holy moly, we can actually save a lot of money if we just provide them the three p's if we provide them decent uh, care not just health care but decent care uh, we can keep them uh, from ending up in the emergency room uh, every other week and it works it's just stunning so this is a, a way in which you actually spend far less money and you get much better results fountain house is a brilliant example of that i think um and full disclosure, I'm on the board. It's a you know, place I care deeply about. But the numbers we have say that uh, a year within Fountain House is less expensive than two weeks in the hospital. So sure. it's. Sure, I know, believe that. There are ways to. Because <laughs> yeah, we this. all know
1: what two weeks in hospital might cost.
0: That's right. Or even, you know, a, a typical ER visit could be $5,000 or more. Uh, we, you know, you've got to figure out a way to. Um, to prevent that. And you can prevent it. A lot of what drives people into the emergency room are things that a coach can manage in their home or a community health worker can manage in the community. So um, we don't have to be doing it the way we've been doing it. Um, VANA has launched in Philadelphia where we're just trying to prove this out uh, in the inner city and neighborhoods where the Medicaid population uh, is incredibly expensive. We're spending a huge amount of taxpayer money on this population and getting just such funky uh, outcomes. So we're we're interested in, in um, changing those incentives, uh, changing how we pay for this and using um, the best data to demonstrate that we can in fact get much better outcomes for people. We can get them, not just so that they're not in the hospital or the emergency room, but we can get them actually uh, out of their homes, uh, into clubhouses, into workplaces, get them back with families, all the things that people really want to do. They really care about, you know, I mentioned this in the book that if you talk to people with schizophrenia, 70 some percent of them want to be working 10% of them work. Uh, So they're incentivized. They, you know, they're motivated, but they just don't get the support and they don't get the support because we don't support it. We don't pay for supportive employment. We know how to do this it's not that complicated. We've had the the evidence base for this since the 1980s. And yet uh, it's not something that we've been paying for because it doesn't really fit into the healthcare model in the way that we would do it with an infectious disease.
1: Well, uh, hats off to you for trying to help folks who are, uh, you know, I mean, it's obvious why you're focusing on the people who are most expensive, because uh, that there's the most opportunity for savings. But those people are, mm-hmm. I'm sure, in uh, really, really tough straits and environments. And so anyone you can get into a better environment, it's a human win, and I'm, I'm sure a massive cost savings for everyone. So you are uh, an advisor to the Good Life Movement, started by our young friend, Andrew Frawley. Fans of the podcast uh, might remember um, him from a number of months back. So let's just play... And and you're you're a man after my own heart because you wrote a book in hopes of catalyzing a movement. Um, I've been known to do that. <laughs> so, so you, you so yeah. so you so you you wrote uh, this excellent book, thinking, "Hey guys, look, we actually know what would work. We just need to drive things in that direction." You're now working on the solution yourself, trying to channel um, more uh, market incentives towards helping people in need. So let's say hypothetically, um, you were not just the mental health czar for California, uh, but the mental health czar for the entire country, and you have a veritable magic wand. Uh, you have all members of Congress together, you have all the agencies together, you'd be like, okay guys, um, uh, these are gonna be my final acts as...
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> as um, what would be on that, that bill? Uh, and and I, I and I hate to talk about things in terms of legislation because you know a lot of the things you talk about in the book it's like aren't necessarily like yeah hey, I can legislate this thing, um, but uh, but you do have a whole host of um, big ideas that do feed into policy which is naturally given uh, where where you've been. So what are like the the and uh, for so let's even imagine it within the context of the good life movement. So the good life movement becomes this uh, thriving popular wave where everyone's like, yeah, like we want a system that actually is going to make us uh, mentally healthier and our kids uh, more optimistic about the future. And then the good life movement and you um, are able to do whatever the heck you want. Like what, what, what does that list look, list look like?
0: Yeah. So I think it takes us in a little different conversation than the one we've been having. We've been really talking about Yeah. How do you fix this? completely broken world that we're in for people who have schizophrenia, you know, the list that I would start to put together moves way upstream from that. And so I like it. uh,
1: I'm into it. Let's go. I mean, maybe you'd have something like everyone uh, getting out of poverty. (laughs) Ah,
0: So now we're getting, yeah, so that's exactly where I was going. So I think you want to think about, yeah, you want to think about not just universal basic income, but you want to think about things like the Nurse Family Partnership. This was a program set up again. NIMH did this fifty years ago. Set up a, this this program originally in Elmira, New York, and then it went to several other parts of the country to prove it out. Um, but it's the idea that uh, when uh, people get, when women get pregnant, particularly uh, women in marginalized communities, they have the support. They have a nurse. They have somebody, a coach, who works with them through the pregnancy. Uh, and and through the first year of um, being a mom, so that they get the resources they need, they get the support they need. If they get depressed, they get the treatment. Um, the evidence from this—it's like the evidence for universal pre-K. Um, this is more effective in the long term than any of our treatments wow. in terms of getting really remarkable reductions in substance use disorder, involvement with the criminal justice system, uh, likelihood to be on Medicaid. I mean, just. It's, it's, these are just very, very impactful programs that we have yet to scale because we've yet to fund them. Actually, to be fair, the Obama administration committed to taking that to scale, but they never really got it done in the right way. So it's um, there's a whole bunch of areas there. I think we want to think a lot more about how we, and we're doing this in California, how we make schools um the center of gravity for a lot of what we can do in the mental health space, uh, teaching kids resilience. Uh, I like the term future proofing. There's a whole movement called uh, social emotional learning in school, which has become politicized and weaponized, and it's not really the right language. But what it does is exactly what we want to be able to do. Is in the same way that we used to teach kids about their physical health, teaching them the basics of their mental health, like how do you. Label emotions. You kind of, you know, we like to say you name it to tame it. How do you manage your emotions? How do you help? Uh, w- what do you do when you can't sleep? Um, all these things that are, you know, they're not fuzzy. They're really like important. Mental hygiene, and yet, yeah, mental hygiene, but in a way that is um, is is fully uh, adaptive and and effective. In Australia, they have put together for every middle school kid in in New South Wales as part of this program called Future Proofing, where they have an app on their phone, they have a wearable, Uh, they learned how to journal and to use their app to sort of manage their own emotional states. There are some digital therapeutics in there they can use if they want. There's a whole series of things that we can now do for a generation that essentially lives in, the, in a digital world, in a very different way, often, unfortunately, a two-dimensional world, which is not great, but it's where they are. And I think we need to manage that. We also need to think about, and this is something I'm really passionate about right now, is there a way that social media, which has been so much the cause, I think, of problems that we're dealing with uh, for youth, how, could, we, could we turn that into the solution? Uh, are there ways to Meet kids where they are. Uh, maybe that's on Discord. Maybe that's in Roblox. I don't know, you know where the best platforms are gonna be, but there are some that are beginning to do this. Um, you know, I just saw this program with Minecraft for kids who are um, grieving because of a loss of a parent. Are there ways to take the kinds of highly addictive and engaging um, platforms that you know, kids are on today and use those to really give kids the skills they need to be successful in the in the twenty first century. That sort of brain health skills. I think we ought to be thinking about that. And we also ought to be thinking about how we uh, reduce the toxicity in some of these systems at the, in the same way. Part of why we failed uh, in mental health with so much to offer isn't that um, people don't have access to things. It's that we don't. They don't engage. And that's where uh, I've gotten so interested in technology because technology if, or whatever else it does, it is incredibly engaging. TikTok is a genius at how to engage your attention. Um, we need to be able to do that. Uh, we need to be able to use those principles to help people get the stuff that helps and help to get the things that allow them to flourish. Uh, we haven't done that. And, and yet I think there's a lot of, lot of opportunity there
1: You know, my, my dream, Tom, is to have, uh, you know, a, a wellness allowance. It's like, what's that? Like, you know, you, you doing this is going to make you happier, healthier. Sure, go for it. <laughs> you, know, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, go ahead. Like, uh, pay, pay for that um, that hike, workout, yoga studio, uh, mixed martial arts. Like, whatever the heck it is. <laughs> like, go, go ahead and uh, um, plug in. Get some people, place, and purpose going. Uh, you know, and, and then you'd wind up with all sorts of new offerings, too, um, because then people would be like, oh, people dig this. Um, right Right now, there are so many things that you kind of want to see in a given community that, unfortunately, the market is supporting less and less. Uh, I, you know, I, I think about some of the studios in, you know, a small town in upstate New York. And then more and more, the kids are staying indoors. The kids are on their phones and like slowly like the business dwindles. Uh, you know you'd you'd like uh that business to be more robust cuz it'd be a win for everyone who shows up uh every day i actually think the public good would be well served by that uh you know it's like my my dream is to have almost like a um and and, and this is this is actually the dream for me i think that our um our economy is going to wind up undervaluing certain things systematically. And a lot of those things are the things we want. Um, And and so uh, putting money into people's hands is one way to get that to be more fully valued. But I think having another dimension. And so my my wellness allowance, like I'm imagining essentially you get uh, the equivalent of like a, a credit or another currency that you can do whatever you want with. Uh, it's use it or lose it. So it's like, well, I guess I got to use this stuff. <laughs> uh-huh. <Yeah. laughs> then if someone, someone takes it, then the, you so, you've taken a bunch of credits, you redeem it, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Uh, so that's not that complicated. That could, we could do that. Like we could do that today, right? And maybe we should as an experiment. Maybe we should. I mean, there's some, some very cool stuff that's been done by uh, – he's no longer at MIT. He was there. But he was doing these experiments with um, providing a kind of wellness credit. To um, villages in Africa and looking at their mental wellness over time. It's a guy named Hans Hossheffer, and or Johannes Hosshofer. Um and it was an extraordinary set of experiments in which he showed that the effect size for giving people, in this case, it was a, a sort of a universal basic income. I think it was like twelve hundred dollars that they were getting. I was like actually. It. Greater than uh, the, than psychotherapy, than medication, than sure. in terms of their uh, of their mental wellness um, yeah. measures that were taken like eighteen months later, and he did this in uh, across several villages in Kenya and Tanzania. It's a very interesting set of studies. It's funny nobody ever writes about it. I think I was going to put it into my book, and I just couldn't fit it in anywhere. So I've just been an admirer of his work, but. You know, when you go into the literature, there's actually quite a bit of stuff there that says this stuff works. We can do this. This isn't. It's simply taking things like this to scale. And um, and and honestly, to your, you know, specifically to your point with forward, Andrew, it's it's about leadership. We need leadership that cares about doing things that incentivize the right kinds of behaviors. And and I'm afraid that hasn't the case in most places.
1: Yeah, if we fix the incentives, all things are possible. Congratulations on this phenomenal book, Healing Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. So Tom, if people want to keep up with you, your work, how can they best do so?
0: I've got a website, uh, Installmd.com. That's probably the easiest way. There's lots of stuff on there. There's a bunch of things about the book on there, um, and I actually do watch it pretty carefully. So I respond to most of what comes in.
1: What people can actually talk to Tom. That's incredible. Congratulations again, my friend. I mean, this is awesome work. Um, uh, I hope that people take your vision to heart uh, because there's so much more we can do. And uh, you're right that there is more and more attention being paid because now it's undeniable. I mean, people are suffering from mental illness in ways big and small. The book says that about 40% of people are getting treatment, which means 60% are not. Um, certainly if you're listening to this and uh, you think you might need some help, go get some help. I mean, uh, uh, if you'd have someone in your life who you think could use some help, try and get them some help. There's a lot we can do. Uh, I saw a counselor slash therapist when I was a teenager, thought it was awesome. Um, and uh, thought like, who wouldn't like to talk to somebody (laughs) about themselves? And hey, if you don't even want to talk to someone, you can probably even talk to an AI at this point. But talk to somebody uh, and and get yourself um, hopefully in the good zone. Thank you, Tom. Congratulations again. This is awesome.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Great chatting with you. Take care.